0: Whenever there's like you know a tough week or like I get a no from an investor or you know I'm not able to close a sale or something, it's just the sort of reminder of the like reconnecting with the impact and with the values. It really ends up being the thing that uh, that drives me forward.
1: It's an age-old question: Can you do well by doing good? Welcome to the Grow for Good podcast, where we speak with leaders who strive to make a positive impact on the world. Here's the host of the Grow for Good podcast, Jed Mori.
2: One in three Americans report experiencing severe online hate or harassment. Nearly a third are targeted due to sexual orientation, religion, race, or ethnicity, gender identity, or disability. Nearly two-thirds of LGBTQ people have been harassed online. Enter Lee Honeywell a powerhouse cybersecurity engineer and specialist who has worked for some of the most notable tech companies in the world, but not anymore. As a tech activist determined to bring awareness of online harassment and to close the gender gap in the tech industry, Lee brought her skill set to bear to tackle these issues and help companies protect their people. Lee's company, Tall Poppy, helps employees take control of their personal digital safety by protecting them from online harassment with security protocols, technology, and training. She's one of the most celebrated professionals in her industry, and she's helping to shape the technology landscape through advocacy, technology, and challenging those around her to do better. And as stated on the Tall Poppy website, Lee's team has the tech muscle, industry experience, and empathy-based drive to power up a new standard of online security. Welcome back to the Grow for Good podcast. I'm Jed Morey, CEO of Morey Creative Studios, executive producer of Newsbeat and the host of Grow for Good. And it is an honor and frankly, a bit of a coup for us to speak with Lee Honeywell, the founder and CEO of Tall Poppy, a digital safety firm that helps secure personal information, protect employees from online harassment and strengthen DEI resources in your organization. Lee is a highly respected cybersecurity professional who has worked for some of the most well-known tech companies in the world and committed to closing the gender gap in the tech community. Lee, thank you for joining us today on Grow for Good.
0: Thanks so much for having me on the show, Jed. I'm really, really excited to be here and talk about the the story of tall poppy.
2: So now before we started recording, uh, we did our Canadian geography. And uh, Lee is a good Canadian patriot. And, uh, the listeners of the show will know that I was born there. And I proudly state that all the time and all my family is still there and they are all welcoming me back, mostly on Facebook messages saying, what is happening down there? Come home. That's enough. (laughs) Um, But today we're talking about uh, Tall Poppy. We're talking about Lee's journey. And Lee, one of the things I wanted to talk about before we get into the business of your business is to talk about your professional journey and set the stage a bit. And I apologize for the long setup in advance, but Not only are you a partner in a venture firm and the CEO of your own tech company, but you were a technology fellow at the ACLU, before that, a security engineer at Slack, Heroku, Microsoft, Symantec. So I'm always fascinated by the entrepreneurial journey. You had a massively successful career in security engineering with some, I would say, pretty notable tech companies. What made you decide personally to take the risk of starting your own firm?
0: I think I've, I've, I've had the entrepreneurial bug since I was a little kid. Um, my dad was a sole practitioner lawyer for a lot of my childhood and straight out of law school, he actually like had it, founded his own firm. Um, so I, I was around folks who had like entrepreneurial hustle to them growing up. And it really was something that I've always believed strongly in, um, in the sort of, uh, as much as I'm like a, a big old socialist, I still actually really believe in the power of social entrepreneurship. I started my first business uh, tuning people's skis um, mm-hmm. when I was a little kid, uh, bought a guitar with the proceeds from that, started a, a, another sort of IT consulting business um, while I was still in college. Um, I really struggled in college. Um, I, I would later learn that I have moderate ADHD, uh, which explains how it took me 10 years to get through undergrad. Um, I kept like dropping out and getting a like, tech job or IT job. And uh, after a few fits and starts, I was able to, to finish schooling, get that degree, which let me get the visa to come work in the States at Microsoft, where my job was rebooting everyone's computer with security updates. So did that for a little bit, was... Working in the states on the famous H one B visa, which is very restrictive in terms of what you can do. Yeah, it sure is. Um, you can't have any side hustles. You can't like have an Etsy store. Like nothing. You're not allowed to have any income outside of work. So of course, I started a couple nonprofits, <laughs> um, which you are allowed to do um, as long as you're volunteering. But selling and, skis uh, and started...
2: guitars—that so was—that was too much, right? <laughs>
0: There's like a lot of a lot of a lot of pieces along the way. So I, I helped found a hackerspace up in Seattle when I was still living there. Um, and then I, I wasn't the founder, but I sort of midwifed another hackerspace down in San Francisco, which is still operating and um, was involved in lots of sort of advisory roles with nonprofits, that kind of thing. Um, and that was how I sort of got that entrepreneurial energy out. Um, I, I needed that extra outlet because I, I definitely have more than 40 hours a week worth of, worth of energy. And, um, (laughs) so ultimately after the 2016 election, I had a bit of a crisis of conscience and I was like, do I, you know, I was working at Slack at the time, which is like, as far as tech companies, like nobody's going to argue that Slack is like a force for evil in the world. I mean, people do, but whatever you're like enabling people to talk with their colleagues more efficiently. I don't think Uh, we could live without it.
2: Let me just say that. Yes. Totally addicted (laughs) to Slack.
0: (laughs) So. I had this moment of, do I move back to Canada? What, you know, how do I sort of put my money where my mouth is? Um, after the 2016 election, one of the things that I did was um, I organized uh, about, it ended up being 3,000 signatories um, for what we called the never again tech pledge. This was a pledge of tech workers who were saying that they would refuse to enable various agendas of the incoming Trump administration. This was things like building a database of Muslims or assisting with, you know, helping ICE with mass deportations and stuff like that. The thing that's really powerful about a pledge um, and differentiates it from a petition, if you're doing a petition, you're saying, dear sir, please allow me to, or please fix this thing. This was instead 3,000 people saying, I refuse to do this. If I am asked to do this, I will throw a wrench in the plans, whether it's quitting or advocating internally within an organization that these plans not be proceeded with. And um, it was a really, it was a really powerful moment and made me realize that being a security engineer working on a commercial product that was like relatively politically neutral was like not the right time for me um, then. And I'm generally in favor of like people staying kind of within their lane. And like, if you can make a quarter million dollars a year as a security engineer, you should probably just do that and then give lots of money to nonprofits that are much more competent at like doing the thing than you are. But this was one of those like inflection points of actually maybe I should go work directly on these Mm. causes. Um, So I ended up getting this fellowship um, at the ACLU to go work on technology privacy policy issues. I sort of jokingly explained the job there as explaining computers to lawyers so that we could sue the government, (laughs) but that was actually what the job was. (laughs) Like it was really, you know, sort of tech reviewing legal briefs, um, working with ACLU policy folks to understand in a ton of depth, like what are the technology implications of this cell phone surveillance thing, or this new privacy law that's under consideration in this state or that kind of thing. So um, it was an incredibly fulfilling and validating year working, um, working on those policy issues. But I still, I still had that like hustle. I still had that like desire to build stuff. And particularly the fall of 2017 was like the big fall of me too. And I ended up, I actually ended up totally burning myself out doing this, but I worked in the sort of in the background um, with a number of people who were coming forward as me too whistleblowers in that big wave of people coming forward. And it really reminded me of how, how much there was this gap, um, in the sort of security and privacy ecosystem of defensive proactive tools to help people who were suddenly high profile or like were high profile as a, as part of their day job, that kind of thing. And, um, some point around October 2017, a friend of mine uh, DM'd me being like, Haley, my colleague's dealing with this like online harassment thing. Do you have any recommendations? And I was like, oh, here's, you know, my checklist. Here's some stuff that I've written. And my friend was just like, man, I really wish there was like a company <laughs> that I could just... Hired to do this thing. Like, I don't have the reason. I was like, yeah, man, I really, I really wish that too. Are you mad at that I friend actually, now? Are, are you me?
2: mad at that friend or ever so grateful no, that they customer. brought that out? Okay. It's <laughs> yeah. like, damn you for planting so, that seed.
0: <laughs> well, so the seed had actually been planted a couple of years earlier. Um, in 2014, Gamergate was this whole oh, thing. yeah. That was like the angry id of the internet, just like emerging and yelling at everyone and, you know, doing much worse than yelling. People experienced a lot of like stalking and threats and hacking and all sorts of horrible I'm not in the
2: gaming world, but I did see uh, that in a documentary form. And for anybody that's not in the gaming world uh, and they take a look at it and really understand what happened there, it is mind blowing and explains a lot of where we are today in a really like bizarre way.
0: The things that we found surprising about 2016 of like the disinformation and the hacking and all of that stuff, all of those tactics were trialed years earlier, um, particularly on black women, targeting black women on Twitter, various different like hate groups online tried those tactics out. And there were like a couple of dry runs leading up to 2016 and Gamergate was one of them earlier sort of social disinformation campaigns were were really like the lead up to that and it's it's really one of the one of the failures of the disinformation community that uh, the anti-disinformation community to be clear um, that the the women who were sounding the alarm women like Mickey Kendall were not sort of given credit for how much how clearly they saw what we were about to head into years before any of this stuff hit the mainstream so Came up with the idea 2014, 2015, because of Gamergate, like, oh, man, I really wish there was a company that would work on these issues, build capacity, because I was at this point, this sort of like one-woman helpline for the internet of like, you know, journalists would call me up and be like, Haley, I'm working on this story. Can you talk to my source and make sure that they have their information security locked down? Mm. And I'd be like, sure, I'm happy to do that. I want to help everybody. And that only scales so far, as you can imagine. yeah. (laughs) So um, at some point in 2015, I had this key insight of like, hey, a way to build capacity here is to get companies to pay for it for their employees. But unfortunately, 2015, I was still on an H-1B. And so I, I, there was a whole bunch of things that led me to just like put it on a shelf for a couple of years. Flash forward to 2018, I'm finishing up my fellowship at the ACLU. I've got my green card. Well, I passed the green card interview and I had the status my green card got lost in the mail for six months. That was a whole other, whole other piece of drama. I'm, I'm it sure it did. I, I traumatized all my American friends by live tweeting my green card being lost for six months, and they were just like, "This is so stressful." <laughs> and I'm like, "This is literally. I have a genius green card. This is the least stressful way this process ever works." Can you imagine if you were here on family, like any of the other statuses? Mm-hmm. Like, I think it, you know, it's one of the my shtick, you've probably like, you've seen a couple of my interviews and stuff. My my shtick is really like being a little TMI in ways that like move the conversation. And I think where I can identify a place where I can use my privilege to be able to be a little TMI, my like being extremely transparent about it, my struggles with immigration is one of those. So I have talked about like mental health stuff and ADHD, and those are places where, you know, I am so fortunate and blessed to have had this career so far, despite all of the like, you know, my brain only working like 80% sometimes. And to be able to like say that publicly, I feel so, so, so fortunate to be able to do that. And the number of people who slid into my DMs and said like, hey, you know, your tweets made me go and get checked. And it turns out YOLO, I also have ADHD. (laughs) It's like actually dozens, which is super, it justifies all of my like shit posting about ADHD. So,
2: well, so I, yeah. I want to keep the spotlight on you for a second with looking at your role now, you as an individual within the industry, because as a culture, we seem, I'll say, obsessed with firsts. And as a woman in tech, you've spoken a great deal about closing the gender gap in your industry. And it reminded us of a, a recent interview that we did with Marcus Baskerville from Weathered Souls Brewing. He's the creator of uh, Black is Beautiful Stout, which is delicious, by the way. And we talked about the weight of being a black head brewer in a predominantly white male field. And running a business is hard enough, but no matter how much you want to focus on the business of your business, you're still in the vanguard in your field. And so it's like you you're also carrying others with you, whether it's Actually them coming into your DMs and saying, I'm rooting for you because I need you to carve (laughs) this path or just kind of emotionally always carrying that with you that uh, you have to be better than the rest of the field because I cannot let others down that are looking at me. Do you find that to be a weight or do you find that to be an inspiration considering that as a woman in tech, you were also in a very predominantly male field?
0: I think there's a couple of different ways that I navigate that. Um, One, I think it's really important to acknowledge that, yes, I'm a woman, but I'm also like a cisgendered white person from a northern country and have some class privilege. And there's, you know, I rolled one of the dice, the hard mode, but a lot of the other dice were on like sixes in a bunch of ways. (laughs) Um, So I think the where that sort of sense of stereotype threat comes in, the, like, I, I must succeed because otherwise I will be letting down women. I think it's important to, when I get those feelings, just be like, oh, this is, like, systemic sexism talking. This is, like, the angry gremlin on my shoulder. i remembering that we're audio only, but I've got, like, the two hand, the two gremlins on the shoulder of, like, this is systemic sexism. <laughs> oh, this is actually my personal, like, responsibility and failings. And you have to be able to, like, balance between the two gremlins. And... Uh, I definitely think of like the Hulk meme of like, how do you, you know, how do you put up with like, how infuriating like systemic biases sometimes and it's like, I'm just always angry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) But uh, I think that's like, when I have conversations in say like the fundraising process or the sales process and the person across the table, like just doesn't get it. One of the things that is great about entrepreneurship is that you do get to have that conversation more than once. We are very fortunate to live in this particular time where there is like an unheard of amount of seed funding available to people. And, you know, that does a lot of the time mean that straight white male founders are getting like $10 million on a $100 million valuation seed checks, which is just like, I don't even know how to process that. That's not but a seed. It does. I know, <laughs> I know. And yet...
2: And, That's a harvest and, and
0: taking and taking four million dollars off the table at the same time, but we won't get into that one. <laughs> yeah, so I think the like the sort of balance, the like contradiction I try to hold in my heart is to balance the chip on my shoulder kind of feeling of like, oh, that asshole, how do they deserve that ten million dollars for their like canned water or whatever, <laughs> wherever is you know my idea that has like both social impact and an actual viable business model to it. It's like, you know, kind of struggle bus fundraising sometimes. You have to be able to like, look at that and be like, this sucks and then do it anyway.
2: I think you can take comfort in the, in the fact that this cisgendered white male has not figured out how to take (laughs) any money out of the funding pool. So we're still,
0: I mean, (laughs) if you can avoid it, if you can avoid it, definitely.
2: I'm just leaving it it for everybody else.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, there's a like Netflix documentary about the history of venture capital um, called Something Ventured. Mm. Uh, And I watched it a couple of years ago before, you know, while I was still figuring out like if I wanted to to play this particular game. And it was really interesting to sort of look back at the like roots of this industry and ecosystem. It comes down to you have to be able to sort of like hold that contradiction in your heart of there's a bunch of systemic stuff that sucks and you know once as an individual i achieve a certain amount of privilege and power and material goods and that kind of thing that i will have more leverage to be able to deal with the systemic stuff and you know the ways that i've done that is writing a couple small angel checks to women founders and stuff and and you know as you mentioned at the start of the call i'm a, a venture partner with pioneer fund which is like the y combinator alumni fund one of the things that I do there is make sure that I have a good look at every company that comes through the YC batch uh, that has a woman or person of color or woman of color founder um, to make sure that they like get properly reviewed um, for our funding process. It's how can we do the opposite of pulling up the ladder, right? Often when people talk about like being that first minority within a particular environment, there's this sort of like with women, people talk about queen bee syndrome. It's like, oh, you know, i had it really hard so you should have it hard which is just like the stupidest <laughs> logic right like i hate that so much and every opportunity that i have to like brain dump about my experiences and it's part of why i do a lot of writing stuff out and documenting and that's mostly because of my like attention span and capacity limits right now been confined to like Twitter threads and stuff, but I I have a Google doc of all of the things that I figured out in the first year of starting a company. Just like, here's the accounting service you should use. Remember to file your 83B. All of that sort of like extremely mundane bullshit. Oh, it's so important Um, though, yeah. It's so important. And having that sort of, and this is actually a a shout out here to Dan Shapiro's book, Hot Seat, which is the O'Reilly entrepreneurship book the most densely useful book I've ever read. Hmm. Um, It has just so many of those things that like as a first-time founder, I'm like, how do I do X, Y, Z? And here's like Dan's three paragraphs on this is how you should do X, Y, Z. And I think that identifying places where you can do the opposite of pulling up the ladder is just one of the most important things um, about making a more sort of equitable world in general, but specifically like an equitable entrepreneurial ecosystem.
2: Okay. So I, I, we've actually already covered a lot and we've talked about uh, even a little bit of tech activism in your role in sort of establishing a better environment for persons of all identities. And uh, I would say maybe a more ethical and moral compass in tech generally. But uh, I think it's important for us to, to do that, to view you and your company through that lens for our listeners so that you know, we, we can frame what it is that you created in Tall Poppy. So With that foundation, let's talk about your company. Tell us about Tall Poppy and how you frame, because I I came into it thinking, okay, this is a cybersecurity company, but it's not. It's more, it's different, it's nuanced. Can you just explain in the basic terms to somebody that does not know the organization what it is that you do?
0: So we are still a cybersecurity company. We are a personal cybersecurity company. If you think about in the workplace, you have a bunch of these like risk management risk mitigation employee benefits. You have your employee assistance program that allows uh, an employee who's facing like emotional difficulties or stress at work to be able to call a counselor and get some help. You have group legal where, you know, you're about to have a kid. You want to get a will written. They can make that happen. There's nothing for cybersecurity. And if you have folks on your team who maybe you have content moderators who have to sometimes ban Nazis from your platform, some of those Nazis are going to like freak out and stalk and harass your employees. What do you as an employer have to offer them? Well, you have a cybersecurity team who's already like way, way, way overloaded, just trying to keep the company's infrastructure safe. And like, I say this from a place of love, but cybersecurity folks, we're not super well known for our bedside manner. So the the key sort of insight that I had a couple of years ago was what if there was an external resource, an external organization that had both technology and humans um, who can help with that gap in your cybersecurity posture around your employees facing personal harassment and personal threats because of their work. And sometimes it's like Bob in accounting who just had a nasty breakup and his like X is threatening to share his nudes or whatever. Like sometimes it is less like work related, but it definitely still impacts poor Bob, who I always pick on, Bob's ability to bring his full self to work when he's like stressed about this cyber harassment. Let alone if it's like, I'm a developer relations person, my job is to go to conferences and talk about the company's like newest, latest and greatest APIs. And I'm super stressed out anytime I write a blog post that like Hacker News is going to yell at me. Or like, come after my family or whatever, right? And it sounds so silly when it's like, who cares about a blog post about APIs? But people get like really mad about stuff on the internet, it turns out. So we do two things to like step back. One, we do proactive cybersecurity training delivered through our software, focused on preventing online harassment from escalating into account hacking. So that's the sort of preventative piece. How do we keep your personal Twitter, your personal Gmail account not the corporate infrastructure that you do the phishing testing and you have the like security operations center covering. This is your personal accounts, your employees' personal accounts. How do you keep them safe? And you really need to have a third party doing it because you can't just be like the security team telling people how to run their lives. You want to have that third party expert. So that's like the preventative thing. And if I could only ever do preventative work, I'd be like so, so, so happy. Unfortunately, sometimes like the internet Nazis or the like jerk programmers come after your employees. And that's where our incident response comes in. So as part of this sort of holistic personal cybersecurity service, we also help folks when they're dealing with active attacks, both prioritize concrete technical steps that they need to take to keep themselves safe, and also just be there as like a human being who's like witnessing and validating what they're being through. Like, man, it sucks to like go to, to like a tech person and be like, hey, I'm dealing with this and, and hear back, oh my gosh, you weren't using a password manager? You idiot. Like nobody want that doesn't help anybody. It literally helps no one. <laughs> um, so really taking that sort of compassionate, trauma-informed perspective on incident response um, is really like that's where, that's, that's our magic.
2: Do you um, cross over with uh, the cybersecurity companies, or do you offer a full suite of of threat detection? And do you have a SOC? I mean, do you can you do it all, or do you use them as channel distributors to sell you almost as like another layer of personal protection? Are you complementary, or are you competitive?
0: We're complementary, um, and in particular, we tend to work really, really closely with the organization's existing security team like we have no interest in being sort of territorial about like what indicators compromise we see versus they see. If we interact, you know, if we're supporting an employee who's dealing with like a law enforcement situation, often like the big tech companies will have sophisticated contacts with law enforcement themselves. So we'll coordinate with their existing and, you know, work closely. And when I say coordinate and work closely, we usually just have a shared Slack channel and like, The security team and us and then the employees can pop in and be like, hey, I got this creepy tweet. What should I do about it? Mm. Be like, oh, let me, here's my analysis. And the security team will also like weigh in. And so it's this really like collaborative mode of working on cybersecurity that I think is the wave of the future around cybersecurity is, is like breaking down those silos.
2: For smaller organizations, can you actually uh, provide a full suite of cybersecurity services?
0: We, we really are sort of laser focused on personal cybersecurity in, and like protecting people from harassment. Um, we definitely do a lot of referring people out to advisory services for, you know, smaller organizations. It's usually appropriate for them to be working with like a virtual CISO firm. There's some really good consultancies. We refer a lot of folks to like NCC and Bishop Fox um, and some other friends are Latacora, who are like a virtual CISO as a service. There's a bunch of just like fabulous firms out there when you're like a 50 person startup that honestly probably doesn't, you know, <laughs> like my, friends, my friends and colleagues will like glare at me for saying this, but if you're a 50 person startup, there's like a good chance you don't need a full-time cybersecurity person, but you need to have someone on call. Right. You need to have right. somebody that can be giving you some architecture guidance, giving you some resources there. It's not necessarily going to be an FTE. Um, but if you don't have that in your ecosystem, you will definitely max out your CTO's knowledge of cybersecurity at some point.
2: So when our producer, Sage, first mentioned that we should go after you for an interview, I looked at her and I was like, yeah, this is this is perfect. It's a great fit for the show. But I, uh, I couldn't figure out the meaning of the name and then, you know, dug deeper into the site. <laughs> And it's actually really cool. And it does actually it, it frames kind of like who you are in, in a really cool way. So can you explain the meaning of uh, the name tall poppy?
0: So tall poppy syndrome is uh, the term used in commonwealth culture. So Canada, Australia, New Zealand, somewhat the UK, the, the other four of the five eyes, if you will, um, to describe the sort of cultural phenomenon of you stick your head up too far People kind of like cut you down, like how dare you rise above your station? there isn't really an equivalent like there is an equivalent in American culture and it's the african American vernacular English term crabs in a bucket um, but it isn't sort of a general American phenomenon because there is this whole sort of like entrepreneurial spirit and people should rise above the, you know there's there's a American cultural how to say like self-perception of being a classless society as much as we can be like that is ridiculous and America is not a classless society in any way (laughs) there's that sort of self-perception of it Um, and terms like crabs in a bucket kind of put the lie to it I think in an interesting way other cultures have similar expressions that denote this sort of like you cut the tall poppies down in i believe chinese culture the, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down is the equivalent expression and fundamentally the like the way we spin this is that our job is to protect the tall poppies right people should be able to shine they should be able to like stick their head a little bit above the crowd and say hey i'm doing this cool thing without getting like hushed
2: i so love yeah. that i love it yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk to Lee about internal and external threats, how Tall Poppy helps companies secure their data, protect their people, and how cyber threats disproportionately affect certain segments of the population.
1: Is your company looking to scale? Mori Creative Studios is a Diamond HubSpot partner agency that helps organizations leverage HubSpot's platform to achieve sustainable and predictable growth. From video production and inbound content marketing to sales and customer retention strategies, Mori Creative Studios provides comprehensive digital solutions for your company so you can grow for good. Visit moricreative.com to learn more.
2: Welcome back to Grow for Good. I'm speaking today with tech entrepreneur and activist and founder and CEO of Tall Poppy Lee Honeywell. So Lee, one of the things that jumped out to me is your call to action on the site for managers who have an employee experiencing harassment. And it's how you frame it that I found really interesting and empathetic. And here's what it says. Do you have an employee experiencing harassment? We're sorry to hear that they and you, by extension, are going through this. Again, I was struck by the level of empathy even displayed in the content, but it made me curious about the ideas of of boundaries. And when it is okay for managers to engage with employees like this, when a threat does come up and how you, I guess, sort of create a culture of openness and understanding for these type, because I imagine in the past that these things would have been handled very personally and it would have been very destructive to an employee. And it's not even something that a manager would even understand or realize was happening. So you can talk about how you kind of open up these communication channels.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the, the fundamental the fundamental piece there is an acknowledgement from employers that they have a responsibility to protect their employees from online harassment, um, particularly you know when it comes in the course of their job. Yeah, so if you think about like a retail employee who's dealing with a customer who comes in and harasses them at their day job, they should ha- you know it's it's very clear when it's that sort of like physical environment. The law is very clear. Obviously, people don't always follow the law, and that's that's a bummer, but there should be the ability for that employee to to kick that person out of the store and have backup from their management chain. The same thing applies to virtual spaces. Um, and the the law, there's like emerging law around this, but it's, it's pretty clear at this point that if you're experiencing harassment from third parties in the course of doing your job, whether it's your customer support person, developer relations, trust and safety, all of these sort of public facing roles that bear the sort of standard of the company in some way, you deserve protection from internet jerks. (laughs) And uh, it shouldn't just be trauma and hacking shouldn't be natural consequences of having these roles. When we talk about like a manager whose employee is experiencing this, one, there's that responsibility. And I think it's really important to like put that responsibility on the company who is being represented, but also having that sort of empathy for everyone involved there's that sort of piece of like secondary trauma of you're watching someone that you care about in some way, even if it's just like a work kind of way, be traumatized. And um, being able to like minimize the harm to everybody in that equation, um, I think is a, a really important part of the process.
2: Can you talk a little bit about how women, LGBTQ plus people and ethnic and religious minorities are disproportionately targeted by online harassment?
0: Oh gosh! yeah, the the research is really, really clear there that online harassment is both extremely common. Um some recent studies showed that well over fifty percent of Americans surveyed have experienced some form of online harassment. something along the lines of twenty eight percent have experienced the more severe forms, things like threats of violence, stalking, persistent harassment, and sexual harassment. Um, but when you break the numbers down further, uh, there really is a disproportionate impact um, on, underrepresented, on folks who are underrepresented in tech. So that's women, people of color, people with disabilities and LGBT folks. People who are already underrepresented in tech and potentially have experienced harassment and discrimination in the workplace are also dealing with these outside threats at a, a significantly increased rate. And when we talk about the sort of triple bottom line or whatever like social entrepreneurship catchphrase you want to use for the the sort of social impact of what we're doing, it really goes beyond there's like the extremely practical, you're protecting your like corporate perimeter in the way that the corporate perimeter extends beyond just your like corporate email, like people's personal internet accounts have an impact on the corporate cyber posture, whether it's being able to pivot from those personal accounts into the corporate network or employees being subject to things like blackmail. So you have this extremely like mundane, practical, like let's increase the corporate cybersecurity posture. But then you've also invested all of this money, time, energy, social capital into recruiting underrepresented people to work at your company. You look at Google spending a, literally a quarter billion dollars recruiting underrepresented people. And if you do all that recruiting, and then some asshole harasses your underrepresented employees to the point where they leave the company. You've literally just set that money on fire. Right. It is not only like a clear economic loss, it's also just like, it's just like it's profoundly unjust. So being able to, to be part of that ecosystem of retention, this is like, one of my sort of long, we, we talked a little bit about being the the vanguard or like the one minority person to be part of an organization and having that sort of burden. We do so much work on the pipeline, like getting more junior people who are underrepresented to be part of an organization. We need to be investing on keeping us there. And that's like right. whether that get like every stage of the keeping us there.
2: So just a couple quick questions before we wrap up. More on the business side of things. Can you geek out for us a little bit on the tech side of things, even though I'll probably just nod and give a couple of harumps and no idea what you're talking about? What kind of tech stack do you bring into an organization? Like, how does it all work?
0: How does the, the, my, I work with this business coach and he's like, how, describe the tennis ball. How high does it bounce? Our core app is built on a React on Rails stack running on Heroku, pretty straightforward, like simple engineering. I have this long running joke with some friends about mom jeans engineering. Like we, we don't need to be using the latest and greatest hotness engineering wise. We just need to do something that works, that's understandable, that is, you know, I, I'm able to hire engineers for and, and using React and Rails as a stack was like a, a, a pretty clear path for us there. Our Our core web app, one of our key focuses is, is building a security tool that never decreases the security of the people using it. Um, and a key point there is uh, the security design principle of least privilege. How do I accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish in securing your Twitter account and securing your Gmail account um, without asking for like really broad scoped permissions? There's some security tools out there focused on like privacy and security that are like why don't you just give me your Twitter password and then I'll like do stuff for you. And that was like a very clear no, no for us from the start. We want to make sure that we are a advisor for folks without being part of their threat model, if that makes sense. Um, So we focus, we focus primarily on sort of instructional content right now. There's some features on the roadmap that are going to dig into more automation. um, But always coming back to that least privileged design um, and making sure that we're not, we're not ever compromising the, the overall cybersecurity posture of our users by the fact that they're using our tool. Well,
2: I, I appreciate you bringing that into sort of a framework that I could understand because uh, I think it'll be helpful for people. I can tell you that uh, your mom jeans analogy might work uh, here in explaining this potential customers. But my grown daughters have told me that under no circumstances, am I allowed to leave the house in my dad jeans? Um, <laughs> I, and, I, and I need to seriously upgrade my wardrobe.
0: <laughs> I feel like one of the most important lessons of the pandemic is um, the difference between hard pants and soft pants.
2: Oh, with that's a whole other episode. Yeah. <laughs> and, and maybe you grow for good company someday. I don't know. Um, there's actually,
0: there's a couple of companies I've, I've been getting Instagram ads for and stuff that are like, these are pajamas that you can wear on a Zoom call. Oh, and I'm that's like, great. sign me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All day. Um, one last question for you. And it really, uh, it, it more goes into, again, the business of your business. A question that we ask most often is about scale. So first is, I guess, in the sense of your customer base, servicing potentially, you know, enterprise level clients, one, but two, how much can your company scale to meet a growing demand in your field?
0: It's a super good question. And one of the things I didn't mention before is that we we do have this concierge one-on-one service where we actually do like a deep dive on an individual's sort of personal cybersecurity posture. We talk through how they, you know, are you on a family plan with other people for your cell phone? Who's on that plan? Let's talk about their security practices. Really like digging deep into an individual's sort of personal cybersecurity posture. And Talking with investors and folks over the, the past couple of years, there's been a lot of like, how do you scale that up? And the the key fundamental thing is, if we are going to make an ecosystem level impact in the problem of, of personal security, of, of online harassment, um, it has to be in software. So all of that sort of do things that don't scale, stuff that we do, like the concierge work, all of that is in service of identifying New ways that the software can protect people, and then scaling up that software. So whether it's you know building chatbots to to start you know, start off the incident response process, I think there's there's always going to be some amount of human element because so much of the the power of what we're bringing is that sort of the human connection and human support um, when someone is in a crisis. One of the the really clear results from the research on trauma is that. The difference between a really bad day and like lifelong trauma, and obviously I'm oversimplifying, the difference between those two things is often social support. When you have a bad thing happen to you, do you have someone say, "Man, I'm so sorry you're going through that"? Would you like a hug, or let's talk through how you're going to get through this? Right, that's sort of psychological first aid in the moment, in the crisis. And you're never going to replace that with a chatbot, but it doesn't necessarily need to be a cybersecurity incident responder with 15 years of experience who's doing that, sort of who's having that conversation with you.
2: Amazing. I guess one final question is, without naming names, uh, obviously, uh, can you give our listeners kind of a use case for how Tall Poppy helped a company or a person at a company through a specific situation that could have otherwise gone horribly wrong?
0: A couple of the places where we have the most, um, we can have the most impact is when you, you know that a person is about to have some sort of thing be public policy change within the organization, and being able to to intervene at that point, or maybe it's someone who's already experiencing a lot of harassment, and they're moving, like moving houses. And that's an opportunity to, to make a bunch of security and privacy sort of operating procedure changes. Um, so those are two of the sort of big inflection points for us. One of them where, you know, hey, my organization's about to go forward with this policy change. Um, Let's work with the core executive team or the core policy team that's making the change to make sure that their sort of ducks are all in a row before this is public. Or that sort of like existing harassment situation where so-and-so who is dealing with like all of this nonsense is moving. Let's make sure that things are done in the right way so that their information stays private despite all of the efforts of the various like creepy data broker companies to make all of our personal addresses public and stuff like that.
2: That's great. Lee, that's it from my side. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you would like our listeners to know?
0: Oh gosh, I just it's so, you know, looking at the other folks that have been bit on the show, I think the I feel so fortunate getting to work on this problem every every day. And whenever there's like, you know, a tough week or like I get a no from an investor or I get, you know, I'm not able to close a sale or something. It's just the sort of reminder of the like reconnecting with the impact and with the values. It really ends up being the thing that, uh, that drives me forward.
2: Well, um, for anybody looking to, um, take a closer look at Lee's company. I'm going to spell the site because even though I was born in Canada, I have a very definitive Long Island accent at this point. So you might think that I'm saying "toll poppy or something like that. So it's T a double L P O P P Lee, I can't thank you enough. It's funny because you watch so many uh, interviews and prepping for a show and you read so many things and you feel like you really, uh, you know, get a feel for that person's personality. So I was sort of anxious and nervous to have you on the show, but you did not disappoint. You were absolutely wonderful and really the perfect example of a grow for good company. So thank you for being you and thank you for being on the show.
0: Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about uh, what we're doing. And I'm so grateful to get to work on this with such wonderful people. So really appreciate it.
2: So go to tallpoppy.com. And as always, we appreciate you tuning in. If you have any suggestions for a guest on the show, feel free to email us at growforgood at maurycreative.com. And if you enjoy the show, like us, rate us, damn it, and review us wherever you download podcasts.
1: The Grow for Good podcast is produced and distributed by Mori Creative Studios, a Diamond HubSpot partner agency that helps organizations leverage HubSpot to achieve sustainable growth. Grow for Good is a registered trademark of Maury Creative Studios.
0: This is a Maury Creative Studios podcast.